I trust everyone had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. I certainly hope that was the case. Our family had a, a lovely time together. It was relaxing and got to eat uh, all of our favorite foods. I, I'm curious as we're here, and you guys are obviously in town this week, is there anybody who made it back today after traveling more than an hour? A few of you. Okay, the really committed ones. We'll make a note of that in the church directory of your commitment there. Um, did anybody travel more than an hour to be here? You're joining up with family or something for the weekend. Anybody there? A couple? All right, good to see you guys as well. Uh, anybody go to see, see a movie this Thanksgiving weekend? A few of us? Okay, very good. Hope you enjoyed it. I didn't particularly enjoy the one I went to, but it'll be all right. Uh, anybody do a turkey trot this weekend? Turkey trot, a few of you. Yep, trying to stay healthy. I commend you for that. I did one last year and regretted it. Um, who got to enjoy their favorite Thanksgiving dessert? Anybody there? Okay, good. There should be more hands up on that one. Hopefully your Christmas tree is up, and uh, everybody all at once. Your favorite Christmas song is? Okay, let's try that again. Everybody all at once. Your favorite Christmas song is? I love that one too. It's one of my favorites. Um, but, you know, we're in between a couple of holidays, and we're starting to look ahead to the new year. Thanksgiving has passed. Christmas is on the horizon. And when we enter into this season, there's all sorts of things we're looking forward to, aren't there, in the new year? Maybe it's health and fitness goals. Maybe you've got an end-of-year review at work coming up, and you're, you're looking forward to that or not really looking forward to it. Maybe you're dreading it a bit. Maybe you're reflecting on friendships of the past year or books you want to read next year. Whatever the case is, it's good for us to stop and reflect and pause amidst all the busyness of this season and consider, what does it look like for me to live my life in a very intentional way? It's really good for us to stop and just take a little bit of time for that in, in all aspects of our life. And certainly the most important aspect of life where we should do that is in our spiritual lives. And so today we launch a sermon series titled Rhythms of Renewal will help us to do that. As we look ahead to the new year, how do we think about spiritual renewal? Take a step back from the book of 1 Timothy and, and think about just general rhythms for our spiritual life. You know, the Bible says a lot about renewal. It says that all human beings are made in the image of God, and all human beings have been corrupted by sin. And it goes on to say that those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are being made new. They're in a process of renewal. Maybe you think of an old muscle car being renewed through a renewal process. And if you've seen that happen, you know it's pretty awesome. You fire that thing up and the engine thunders and you just feel it in your bones. The chrome trim, it's just sparkling in the sun. The new leather, it looks amazing and it, it smells even better. That fresh paint job is so crisp. You can see your own reflection on it. Like, it's pretty awesome to see that, right? But stick with me here. What if, what if the Bible was telling us that sin is actually corrupting us, making us rusty, and causing us to break down like an old car? And God is inviting us into a renewal process. Maybe you don't think of your own life that way, of one where God is inviting you to be renewed into something glorious like that old muscle car. But that's exactly what God is doing in your life if you're a Christian. And he's inviting you to strive towards that renewal. 
So we want to take these next five or six weeks, and you'll hear from four of our pastors across a six-week period about what does it mean for us to be made new in Christ? What does this renewal look like? Well, let me share just a couple of passages to give you a sampling of what the Bible says about this renewal process. Psalm 51 and verse 10, David would pray this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. In, in Romans chapter 12, talks some more about renewal. And in these next couple passages, you'll see that renewal starts in your mind. It starts with how you think. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ephesians chapter 4, we see more about renewal. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Renewal through your mind. Colossians 3 and verse 10 says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Titus 3 and verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're a Christian, God is serious about you being renewed into the image of Christ, that sin is corrupting you, and we need to think seriously about the work that the Holy Spirit is doing, that we would be renewed into the image of Christ. So we start off this sermon series, Rhythms of Renewal, thinking about renewal through thanksgiving. That thanksgiving is a key part for us to be renewed into who God has made us to be and wants us to become. Now Luke 10 and the passage Joanna read is not necessarily a common thanksgiving passage. Maybe you would have anticipated Psalm 100 or Psalm 136 or, or, or another passage like that. But let me give you the short overview of this chapter. Jesus says to his disciples, 72 of them, I'm going to send you out and amazing stuff is going to happen. You're going to cast out demons. People are going to get saved. You're going to be just blown away at what I do through you. And they go out and lo and behold, amazing things happen. They go out, they're casting out demons. People are getting saved. They've never seen anything like it. They come back and they say, Jesus, you won't believe it. We went out and people were getting saved and we were casting out demons. And like, it was incredible. And he says, well, yeah, I told you that was going to happen. Well, what's the surprise here? Like, that's exactly what I said would happen. But guys, don't get caught up on that. I know there's a lot happening in your life right now. You've never seen anything like this. You know what should really catch your eye? Jesus says, you should be thankful that you are saved and your name is written in heaven. That's what should catch your eye. And so while there's a ton swirling in this passage, at the very end, Jesus says, here's the part you're supposed to catch. You should be grateful that you have eternal life. And I think there may be no more pertinent and relevant message for us in between Thanksgiving and Christmas with all the things swirling in our life to pause and say, boy, we should be thankful for what God has done in our lives. So the main point of the passage and this sermon is simply this. Thanksgiving for eternal life must not be overlooked. Thanksgiving for eternal life must not be overlooked. It's easy to overlook it. Certainly it was for those 72 disciples, and certainly it is for us today. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's a grave mistake. It's the most important aspect of gratitude, is seeing gratitude for eternal life. But as we look back on this passage, I think we see Jesus inviting us into a new perspective, a perspective of gratitude. And we can see at least three ways to be thankful. Three ways to be thankful, and that those will form our outline. Let's start with the first one, 
One, be thankful to the Lord of the harvest. Be thankful to the Lord of the harvest. Look back at verse 1 of Luke chapter 10, if your copy of God's Word is open. I hope it is, and you'll keep it there. Here's what we read, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We can read this passage, and there's numerous things that might grip our attention right out of the gate. We could look at the 72 that Jesus sent out and run some demographic studies on them and try and figure out who these 72 were. We could look at the towns they were sent to, whether they were booming metropolises or small rural villages, if they were all in a line or they were all spread out. We could look at the people in the towns, the harvest as Jesus refers to those people, and think more about them. But if we step back and not, don't only look at it from what we see, but maybe try and look at it from a divine perspective, as the Lord of the harvest would see it, what we see is that he's sovereignly appointing 72 to be sent out. And he's sending them to specific towns. It's not random. It's actually the towns he's going to go to. And he declares that the harvest is his. He's saying, I'm behind all of this. It means that the disciples and us need to reorient our thinking and see God at work in our circumstances, not merely see the circumstances of the day. Friends, if we're going to experience renewal through thanksgiving, the first step is this. It must start with a change in your thinking to see God at work in your circumstances, not merely the circumstances themselves. You might think of it this way. Most parents are seeking to raise grateful kids, not entitled kids. That's what most parents are trying to do. But it's not too long into the work of parenting before the kids start to say that the bedtime snack or the dinner meal or the breakfast or whatever isn't going to work. This isn't good enough. I wanted the Fruit Loops, not the Cheerios. Of course, parents are great. That grates against them. We want to be, have grateful kids, not entitled kids. And so what is the, the common retort? Well, kids, there are 50 million kids in Africa who would love to have those Cheerios. You should be grateful for Cheerios. I'll take them away and you'll have nothing for your bedtime snack. Now, whether or not that's an effective strategy or not, the point is you are trying to reorient how your kids think about it. To say there's a bigger picture here, there's something greater going on. And for us to be grateful and not entitled, it also requires us to zoom out and see a bigger picture of the Lord at work in our circumstances. Being thankful to the Lord of the harvest doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to circumstances. We're not grateful for the good circumstances the Lord brings. It simply means that we see the giver as more significant than the gift. And so if we're to get really practical here, think about it this way. When the kids are little, you're going to have all kinds of noise in your life. And generally noise at the most inopportune of times. It's difficult to be thankful to the Lord of the harvest in that time. And you can look to him and say, Lord, I see this noise that I don't necessarily want, but I'm thankful for you bringing these people into my life because I know they are a gift, even if it's inconvenient what's going on right now. Or perhaps you're at the other end of the spectrum. And each day, and each morning, and each afternoon, and each evening, all you feel is aching joints. 
And it's hard to move around. And you wish you could do the things that you used to be able to do and you're not able to do anymore. And that's what's pressing on your mind and on your body. And you can look out and say, Lord, I look forward to a fully transformed, a fully renewed body. But as long as I have this one, I'm thankful for the breath in my lungs, the opportunity to experience your goodness and to pass that goodness along to others. Help me to be thankful for the health that I do have, even while my health is fading. Perhaps your house has grown this uh, holiday season. You've got college kids back in town, or you've got other family members in, and the dishes are just multiplying, and you wish for all your life you could just sit down and be with everyone instead of having to do more work and more work and more work to keep things cleaned up. You could pause behind the circumstances and see the Lord of the harvest who's brought you good food to eat and a house or an apartment to be cleaned up and people to spend the time with. To see the Lord of the harvest is critical. But on the flip side, if we could look at it from the the negative angle, failure to see the gifts through the lens of the giver isn't just a big whoopsie. It's not a missed opportunity like you could have bought stock at a lower price and you missed out on that blessing. Failing to see the gifts through the lens of the giver, the Bible actually says is on the pathway to idolatry. It's a big language that the Bible uses. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 says this. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were not being renewed. You see, if we don't give thanks to God for the good gifts, it does mean we're on the highway to idolatry. And I think it's important we recognize that we can be in church each week. We can sing the wonderful songs that the band just led us in. We can recite scripture regularly and still fail to give thanks to the Lord of the harvest. Our lives can be filled with religious and good activities and fail to give thanks to the Lord of the harvest. It's so important that we see him as the producer behind the film, the director behind the musical, the author behind the novel. See his hand at work and give thanks to him. And renewal through thanksgiving starts with a change in your thinking and how you see the circumstances of your day that you be thankful to the Lord of the harvest. And maybe you're recognizing this Thanksgiving season that this hasn't been a major part of your life. You gather around the table and you think, man, I don't know the last time I sat down to express gratitude, and I want that to be a part of my life. Let me simply encourage you to do with gratitude what you do with every other important part of your life. Schedule it. That's not legalistic to say we're going to schedule a time to be grateful. It's going to recognize my weakness. And if I don't schedule a time for myself to exercise, I won't exercise. If I don't schedule a time to have important conversations with my wife, they're going to get pushed aside because these things matter. So I schedule them. And maybe that's just a simple application step for you this morning to say, I'm going to schedule a weekly 15 minutes to be grateful because I know it's absolutely critical to honoring God, that if I'm not grateful, I'm not godly. Number one, be thankful to the Lord of the harvest. But secondly, I think it's important we see in this passage that we be thankful for the Lord's provision in the harvest. Yes, be thankful to the Lord of the harvest, but also be thankful for the Lord's provision in the harvest. 
Take a look at verse 3 of Luke chapter 10. Here's what we read. Jesus says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The rest of the passage makes abundantly clear the disciples are being sent out with a specific mission. They're being sent out into the harvest. They're being sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call sinners to repentance. There could not be a more important mission. And yet, for the magnitude of the mission, the lack of provisions is striking, isn't it? Like, you're going out on this critical, essential mission, and we're not taking any provisions with us. I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago about Lewis and Clark and their famous trek out west sent by Thomas Jefferson himself. And they were supposed to go and find a water passage all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, and it would revolutionize the American economy and make us a global superpower. That was the plan. And so as I'm reading this book and hearing about their mission out to the West, it's recounting some of the provisions they took. Right? It's a critical mission. There's going to be dangers along the way. And so just a quick sampling of some of the things they took. They took 24 tomahawks in addition to 24 large knives, in addition to 35 axes. That's a lot. 15 rifles, 200 pounds of rifle powder, and 400 pounds of lead. These guys were ready to go. It was a big journey. And they knew they would encounter Indians along the way. And so they brought gifts for the Indians, among other things, more than 50 pounds of tobacco, 144 pairs of scissors, and 144 pairs of eyeglasses, other things along the way. But the point being, they had a huge mission, a critical mission, and they took great care to bring the right provisions along the way. So if we come back to Luke 10, and we see Jesus sending out his disciples with a critical mission, but no provisions at all, it begs the question, why? Why did you not take anything with you, right? And I, I don't think the application is that it's wrong to make plans, it's wrong to make provisions, it's wrong to save up money, have a savings account, 401k, anything like that. I, I don't think that's what the idea is here. I think the point that Jesus is driving home to the disciples, and he'd want us to hear as well, is to recognize that God is the one who's going to provide for their needs along the way. Because I'm sending you out on this mission, and I will provide for you through the people in these towns. To recognize that some days they were going to have better lodging and better meals. And other days they'd have worse lodging and worse meals. And some days they may not have meals at all. But to recognize that every single day God has their needs in view and he will provide for them. There's a section in the book of Philippians chapter 4 near the end that's really interesting. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And he's thanking them for their generous gifts to provide for his needs. Church at Philippi, you've been so generous, faithfully sending gifts. Thank you. You're providing for my needs. And as soon as he gets done saying that in Philippians 4, Paul turns around in verse 19 and says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You're supplying my needs and God's supplying yours. And how is God supplying their needs? Through a whole host of ways, just like he's supplying your needs through a whole host of ways. It's recognizing that God works through human means. And we often see the provision and fail to recognize him as the source behind it. 
And this point could start to sound so basic that you almost check out and overlook it. I don't want you to do that, but to recognize that God is the one who provides your house or your apartment. He's the one who provides your vehicle and your food. He's the one that provides good relationships. He's the one that provides your income and a promotion at your job. He's the one that provides you with the personality you have that is specially equipped to do certain good works. Looking more generally, he's the one that provides the good gift of trees and of pets, good gifts of electricity for your fridge so that apple pie doesn't go bad. Do you see his provision even in that? Friends, are you looking diligently for his provisions to recognize they come from him? It requires intentionality. It requires a certain set of eyeglasses, you might say. He's providing in 10 million ways, and sometimes we see two or three or four of them, and it takes eyes to see the rest. I love how author Paul Tripp said it. He said this. He said, gratitude is not first an emotion. It's not first an emotion. It's not something I feel. No, he says this. Gratitude is not first an emotion. It's a commitment to live as a blessing hunter, constantly looking for reasons to be thankful. Well, you want one question to ask yourself coming out of this sermon, it's this, am I a blessing hunter? Am I a blessing hunter? Some of you are going to go out and you're going to hunt for deer. Some of you are going to go hunt for deals at Kohl's. Some of you are going to go hunt next month for devour downtown deals. You know all about how to hunt on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You know that it takes skill to look in the right places you know that it takes persistence to keep looking even if you don't see what you're looking for right away. You know that hunting for these things is often better with friends. Would you take those same principles and become a gratefulness hunter, a gratitude hunter, a blessing hunter, being persistent, skillfully looking, bringing friends with you? Friends, thankfulness for God's provision, seeing what he's done in your life is a matter of the will. And you're either going to choose to be a blessing hunter, or you won't. But we know that gratitude isn't first an emotion, it's first a decision. And so we have to commit to that decision together. That brings us to our third and final way to be thankful. Yes to the Lord of the harvest. Yes for his provision in the harvest. Number three, be thankful you're included in the harvest. Be thankful you're included in the harvest. And here we skip down to the very end of this chapter, Verse 17, here's what we read. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's as if the passage has been building to this point. Making a trek up a mountain. You reach the top of the mountain and come to a very surprising message. He says the greatest opportunity for thanksgiving that any of you possess is the gift of eternal life that comes only through Jesus. That our gratitude should be more about his work to give eternal life than the enhancements to this temporal life that he gives. Certainly it's not denying gratitude for provisions. We just talked about the importance of that. 
but rightly prioritizing where we feel gratitude. I know oftentimes we sort of can flatten out salvation. I'm thankful Jesus saved me, and you move on to the next thing to be grateful for. And I want to encourage you not to do that. Maybe you'll think of it, give you a little metaphor like this. Imagine someone is remodeling a bathroom, and they're going to rip the whole thing out. They're going to go down to the subfloor, down to the studs, and rebuild it back. And you see along the way everything that happens to pull the wiring through, redo the plumbing, how they got rid of that old tub and put a nice tile shower in, the flooring that was, you know, all nasty and you got new stuff in. You've seen the whole thing, right? Somebody walks into the bathroom after you're done. They say, oh, wow, it's a great bathroom. You guys did a good job here. And they walk out. And you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't see everything that went into that. You didn't see all the work to rip out the the drywall, all the work to rip out the flooring, all the work to go get this this new toilet, this new shower head that's got this amazing feature of the different ways the water can come down at you. There's so much work that went into this. You don't want that bathroom to be flattened into just a simple, oh, you've got a bathroom. You're seeing all the hard work that went into it behind the scenes. And I wonder if when it comes to our salvation, we can sometimes do the same thing. You flatten it out and say, oh God, you saved me. And we miss all the elements of his love on display in absolutely marvelous ways. And when you see all of those in full 4K, it leads you to come to absolute and utter delight. Oh, Lord, thank you. Just like you walk into that bathroom and it just fills your heart with joy when you're the one who did all that work, there's delight in seeing this finished product, right? So let me give you three words to think about salvation that helps you not flatten it out and miss some of the depth of what has happened, that your name could be written in eternal life. Let me give you three words. Near, the opposite of far, near, absorb, adopt. You're going to write those three down. Near, absorb, adopt. Think of Jesus. He came near to us. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's in the ultimate palace of heaven and would humble himself to come to this earth to experience weakness and pain and suffering so that he could understand your daily struggles. He came near. And not only to understand your struggles, but far more than that, to be able as the perfect sacrifice to pay for your sins so that when he walks onto the scene, John sees him in chapter 1 and verse 29 of his gospel and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb who came near. Don't miss the magnitude this Christmas of him coming near. You can say, Justin, I, I know the storyline. Christmas he was born, Easter he dies. It's basically how it goes. And then he rose again. No, pause, his nearness. He came as a baby, born in a humble circumstance with a purpose of redeeming, near, absorb. What did he absorb? Well, he absorbed the punishment on the cross that each of us deserved. He took betrayal and suffering and most of all, the very wrath of God. He absorbed all of it. The the, the fancy theological word for that is propitiation. Propitiation, it simply means this, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. 
You might think of it this way. There's a a great paper towel, and if you pour out water or a drink on the carpet, the best paper towels you can press down, and it absorbs all of that liquid out of the carpet. There's none left. There's no discoloration left. The cheap ones don't necessarily get it all out, but the good ones do. you've, You've bought the good ones before. Jesus says, I am full propitiation, fully absorbing the wrath of God. So there's none left for you to face. Not one drop, not one bit of discoloration for you. I've absorbed all of his wrath against your sin. Jesus came to do that. And you may be familiar with Romans 5, 8 that talks about this a bit, but I'm going to read into verse 9 so that you catch the whole context Romans 5, 8, very well-known passage. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. His wrath that must be poured out on sin. Don't lose sight of his absorbing work to take the cup of God's wrath and drink all of it so there's none left for you. Yes, he came near. Yes, he absorbed. And third word, adopt. Adopt. Song we just sang. He calls us sons and daughters. Not employees. Not subcontractors. Not servants. I saw something on social media the other day about Thanksgiving pictures with families. And they said one of the keys is if somebody's got a boyfriend or girlfriend there, you need to make sure the boyfriend or girlfriend is at the periphery of the picture so that if we need to edit them out for future years, if something goes south, you can do that. You got room to make a change there. Well, praise God, he doesn't treat us that way. Full adoption as sons, not put on the periphery like a boyfriend or a girlfriend to see if you can measure up and get into the family. That's not how he treats us. Titus chapter 3 and verse 7 speaks to this. He says, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. He doesn't merely take away the punishment that's coming for you. He invites you and says, let me be a full son, a full daughter, a full heir. The whole inheritance that goes to Christ now comes to you. Theologian J.I. Packer says the whole New Testament can be summed up in three words. Adoption through propitiation. He adopts you as sons because he paid for the wrath of God and absorbed all of it. So Christians, don't flatten out the gift of salvation this Thanksgiving and this Christmas season. Don't overlook the enormity and the glory of Christ's work for you. Because when you slow down and you see the magnitude, it will fill you with joy, with delight, just like when you walk into that bathroom that you did all the work for, except it'll be way better than that. It'll be way better. And if you're not a Christian this morning, can I just invite you into considering this great gift of salvation that Jesus has made available by coming near, by absorbing the wrath of God and offering full adoption as sons and daughters. Maybe you've heard this gift described as merely something where you're saved from hell and you can get a get-out-of-hell-free card. And certainly, hell is a real place where the wrath of God will be poured out. But I want you to know this Thanksgiving season, the Bible describes a rich feast in heaven, richer than any Thanksgiving feast we would ever see. It describes a feast in heaven where death doesn't hold us, where there are not loved ones missing 
Maybe there was a loved one missing from your Thanksgiving, and Jesus says, for all who've trusted in me, there is a better feast coming. Let me read to you from the prophet Isaiah how he describes this. This is Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. Here's what Isaiah says, and listen to this, is a better feast to look forward to. It says, on, the mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. May it ever be so. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with grateful hearts for all that you've done. Sending of your son, sending of your spirit, the work of redemption, your provision along the way. You, as our master, love us and care deeply for us. That you're preparing a feast beyond all imagination for us. Oh, Lord, may we not flatten out thanksgiving to trite phrases. Missing the grandeur of who you are and what you've done. By your spirit, may you fill our hearts with gratitude for you. Do a supernatural work in us, we pray. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.